Last week we uh, started here in John chapter six in the first few verses. Who was here? Anybody here last week? Yeah, we, we talked about what? The feeding of the how many? 5,000, some of you got the answer, that's very good. Uh, it was 5,000 men, it was probably uh, a bunch of their wives, maybe a bunch of their kids, we're talking 10, maybe 15, maybe 20,000 people. Jesus fed them with two fish, cinco pano, I don't know Spanish. Anyway, uh, I was trying to do bread there. Anyway, uh, five loaves of bread, a miracle happens. Before their eyes, they're so excited, they're like, this is the prophet that the Old Testament was teaching us about. Let's make him king. And, and Jesus kind of pulls away from that scene. I wrote an email about it this week if you haven't read it. Hope you get to. But now we're on the, on the backside of this incredible thing happening. The disciples all have a basket of, uh, you know, like a to-go box, a basket under their arms of the, of the food that the, they were able to collect after everybody had been fed. And uh, they're just kind of hanging out. And that's where this next scene begins. It's reported to us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and here in John. And here in John, it's kind of the, the most truncated version of the story that we're going to read in all the Gospels. It says in John 6, 16, that when evening came after the feeding of the 5,000, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across uh, the sea to Capernaum. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Is everybody with me? Here it is. And uh, they were over here on the uh, east side near uh, modern-day Jordan. That's where they fed the 5,000 over here. And, and the fellas were now living over here on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Capernaum. And so Jesus says, hey, guys, get in the boat, head over there. I'll clean up. And, and, and that's essentially what John reports. reports. They got in a boat and, uh, and they headed over there. It says when the, uh, the evening came, uh, his disciples went down to the sea and they started across to the Sea of Capernaum and it was dark during this journey. And uh, spoiler alert, Jesus had not yet come to them at this point in John's telling of the story, meaning he's heading their way. Everybody with me? Storms, can we talk about that briefly today? We are familiar with those here in Florida. When I moved here in 2004, we had six named hurricanes go through our state. Anybody here back then? Yeah, got here just in time for Charlie. He was nice. And then two weeks later, in came Ivan. And Ivan, uh, I was, uh, you know, now got my, my Florida legs, my sea legs. I was like, you know what, I got my kids and I put them in the back of my Ford Exploder and I said, hey, let's, uh, let's just go check out what happens in a hurricane. Found out later, not the best move, not the best move to drive around with your children in the back of your vehicle during a Cat 3 or 4 hurricane. Don't do that. If you're new here in Florida, please learn from your pastor's mistakes. But you know what I remember seeing? Lots of trees doing this. Actually got down here to the, I don't know where I am, got down here to the corner of Clay and Sefner Valrico. This massive oak tree had just tipped over right in the middle of that intersection. And we actually had to like turn around, back up, and go back around and get, we, we went out on 60 because I didn't take those initial signs as maybe go home, right? Uh, but we ended up driving on, on State Route 60. Of course, everything's closed up, boarded up, nobody's open. We found one gas station that had the courage to open and the line of Floridians coming out of this gas station to buy water and whatever was in there was just a, a marvel to us. We're like, wow, people are shopping in a hurricane. This is so cool. Yeah. Hurricanes, storms, part of life. They make life in the midst of them difficult for us to navigate. Trees come down. Uh, they're a pain to go through. You know what my, my least favorite memory of uh, Ivan was? 
They knocked out the power in my neighborhood for a week. What does that mean in late August, early September? No AC. One of the biggest fights my wife and I have ever had surrounded this need for AC. She was sure that we didn't need it. I was pretty sure that we did. (laughs) We're fine. But that's what storms do. They create stress, strife. They divide, they discourage. Jesus is sending his friends into a storm. John doesn't give us a whole lot of the details. Matthew gives us more. Look what it says in Matthew 14, verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, this Greek word made is an interesting one. Everybody ready to say some Greek with me? Anigkadzo. Everybody say anigkadzo. Oh, you guys are so Greek. Let's all have euros for lunch. Anyway, uh, anikadzo is this word that would not normally be used in a sentence like this except for emphasis. Anikadzo means to compel. In some parts of the scriptures, it means to force. It's the kind of idea that we have of you having a child that you said, hey, Jimmy, don't go towards the road. And the four-year-old like, hey, Jimmy, don't go towards the road. And then you as a parent get up and say, hey, Jimmy, ba-bow. Let's not go towards the road. It's forceful. We're not doing that. Now, we don't have a lot of other details, but this kind of made me think this week. What that verse tells us is that Jesus sometimes pushes his disciples into storms. Like, he's not being suggestive, he's being directive, imperative. Immediately after this was done, it tells us in Matthew, he says, get in the boat and go across. Now, we don't have the interplay between him and his disciples, but here's the deal. They had just experienced this incredible thing together. They had witnessed, you know, some 10, 15, 20,000 people be fed with just a very little food, and, and they were probably feeling a spiritual high. Have you ever had one of those? They probably were not super ready to go, although we could maybe, you know, argue from the telling of the story that it had been a long day up to this point, right? Maybe they were tired, but maybe they weren't. Maybe they had understood, this is really the Son of God. He's done it again. He's done a miracle. We've, we've got to pay attention to him. And, and as they're cleaning up and finishing up the, the gathering of the food, Jesus says, you know what, you guys go ahead. And they're like, oh, no, 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 Savior. We'll stick around. We'll stay. And he says, no, no, seriously. I'll, I'll dismiss the crowds. You guys go. And they're like, maybe, maybe. We don't have this in our reports. But maybe they just said, no, 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 stay. And he said, no, seriously. And he took Peter and maybe John, and he starts walking down to the boat. And he says, I need you to get in here and head that way. We also don't have this report, the weather report at the time. I've always been taught this, that suddenly this great storm came over the Sea of Galilee. But what if these fishermen were not only trying to be nice to Jesus and stick around, but also saw the clouds a-brewing? And they were like, hey, thanks, Lord, but this isn't the right time to get into a boat. We understand that living in Tampa, right? We all check out what the weather's gonna be before we go fishing. Lots of chop, should've stopped, right? I don't have these things as facts, but, but what we do have is regardless of what was going on in that scenario, we have a savior who's compelling, forcing his friends to get in a boat that's gonna eventually be tossed by a storm. How do you feel about that? 
See, storms uh, typically come up in three ways. Storms can sometimes be storms of our own making. We kind of make our bed, we gotta lie in it. Anybody been there? Yeah, you pay the dumb tax. I tell those stories all the time. Uh, But sometimes storms come up because maybe we did some stupid things, but then the people around us did even stupider things and now we're paying their price. Some of us grew up in that family. But in all of these situations, and then in certain unique situations, it wasn't our fault, it wasn't the other people's fault, it was just God's plan. In all things, it's God's plan, or God's allowance for the storms of our life to arrive. Why would he do that? I've often heard uh, from people who refuse to believe in God that one of their hang-ups is that he allows bad things to happen to good people. I always tell them, there's no such thing as a good people. That's one of the beginnings. But I can't argue with them that bad things do happen to seemingly innocent, good people. We see it all over the scripture. Those that God calls, acting in obedience and paying for it. Noah, build a boat. And for years, he's made fun of by his neighbors for building a boat in a desert. Moses, a burning bush, you know, catches on fire. Go get my people. He heads across into Egypt tells the Pharaoh, let my people go. The Pharaoh says, no, hard no, and now I'm gonna make it even harder on your people. And the people who you're supposed to emancipate, you remember we studied that like last year, they hated Moses for it. And Moses comes back to God, he's like, really? Daniel refuses to pray, refuses to stop praying to his God, and he's thrown in a lion's den. Do I need to go on? God points boats towards the wind and the rain and the storms. He's pointed yours. He's pointed mine. Why does he do that? Hear this. When the storms come, God has allowed or appointed those storms for our greatest good and his greatest glory always. Always. He is allowing the things that kick up in your life to happen in your life so that you and I can receive the honing, the shaping that we would never receive otherwise, and that he would, through us, receive the glory that perhaps, apart from those storms, we'd never think to give him. The writer of Hebrews talks to us about our Father in heaven. He says in verse 7 of chapter 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline? A good parent allows their kids to struggle every once in a while. A bad parent helicopters and never does. It could be something menial. My daughter. My daughter was in the hospital earlier this year. Thank God she came out fine, but she spent a few days in the St. Pete Hospital, and so the bills, after all the insurance has done what they do, they're starting to roll in, right? And we are, you know, partnering with her and and paying some of them, but there's some of them that are smaller that I'm like, hey, this one's yours. You're in your mid-20s now. Pay the freight. And she's happy to do that. God bless her. She's grown in, in her responsibility to that point. She's cool. But one came to the house. She put our address on her bill. So it came to the house, and I'm taking pictures of them. I say, hey, babe, here came this bill from this doctor, blah, 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 blah. You need to pay it. And she sent me back this message. Great, you pay it, I'll Venmo you. Which is a reasonable, we've done that before, right? But here's what I'm thinking. Hey, I need you to learn how to pay your own bills. 
So here's a picture of the bill. Here's the little web address that you need to go on to. Instead of you paying me and me paying them, how about you just pay them, go. Do you know what she wrote me back? Frowny face. <laughs> Followed by, okay. Why? Because it's just easier for her not to have to mess with all that. It's an extra step. But who as a good father would not say to this Love, you know, this daughter that he loves, hey man, learn the next steps. Your life is full of next steps. Our job as parents is to prepare our kids for the next steps. Don't do it all for them. And that's why God says, hey, I'm heading this boat into a storm. Because I need you to learn things in this storm that you will never learn apart from it. Malachi was a prophet at the end of your Old Testaments, and he comes to Israel in a season where Israel is an abject rebellion to God. It's uh, started from the top and it's worked its way down to the rest of the people, the prophets, or the prophets, Malachi's a prophet, the priests of Israel are completely blowing it in their responsibilities of pointing Israel to God. And so he says, uh, here in uh, Malachi chapter three, he says, God will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priests, and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Don't you love the refiner talk in the Bible? It's all over the place. That our God has a refining fire. Most of us have never smelted an ore. But here's what that means. God's a furnace at times. And he subjects us to the flames in the storms of life. Why? So they can burn off the parts of us that don't need to be there. And in, in its place have just our greatest good and his greatest glory to live life with. James Montgomery Boyce is a preacher. He wrote some commentaries. I was reading his book this week on this passage. He talked about a, uh, one day he was on a trip to Jerusalem and they were in the market and uh, he came upon a silversmith. Silversmiths in these markets have these uh, kind of crude mini smelting furnaces where they would take uh, the coins of their Western friends, melt them down. I don't know if there's any silver in our coins anymore, but basically back when he was telling the story, there was, and he'd melt down those coins and then fashion a cross or something that would be meaningful for them to take home as a, a memento of their trip to Jerusalem. He'd emptied his pockets of everything that was silver and he, uh, the silversmith had put it in this little urn, this little furnace, and, and they were just waiting for it to melt. And Boyce noticed that every once in a while, the <laughs> the silversmith would just walk over and, and, you know, put his face over the top of this burning, bubbling cauldron. And he did it three or four times, and finally, Boyce asked him, he says, why do you keep doing that? Ah, said the silversmith, I, I do that because I know that the silver is ready if I put my face over it and I can see my reflection in what's there. That's when I know that all the dross, all the things that aren't meant to be a part of the silver have left because the silver is reflective like a mirror. And when I put my face over it and I could see myself, then I know that we're ready. Isn't that what God's doing with us in the storms? He's burning all of the stuff off so that as he looks into our lives, he sees his reflection. He sees his character, his person in us. And in seeing that, he knows that he's bringing about our greatest good and that we'll bring about from us to him his greatest glory. Now what's going to follow here is 
some storm steps. There's two of them. I'm going to try to get you out a little bit early this morning so you can sign up for some groups. But we understand storm steps, right? Someone predicts a hurricane. We see the, uh, the spaghetti graph or whatever that thing is, right? And we, do, we start saying, all right, we've got to get ready. And so everybody goes by, all the water and the toilet paper, because heaven forbid we have a bad bathroom experience. And, and we fill up our tubs with water, right? And some of us, we board up our windows, right? When we were in Texas, it was tornadoes. When those things would come, you got a little bit more serious. It was heading over your town. You would find the inmost closet in your, bed, or in your house or the bathtub, and you'd throw a mattress over top of you. Have a good night, right? And those were our preparations. Those are our preparations in storms. When, it, when the storms of our spiritual lives come, there's, there's still things that we need to do, but they're not external as much as they are internal. The remembrances. When our storms come, what this text teaches us is that we need to remember two things. Maybe three if I have time. But definitely two. Ready? The first one is this. Everybody, let's make some goggles. Here we go. In the storms, Jesus sees us. Say that with me. In the storms, Jesus sees us. And then this. In the storms, Jesus saves us. In the storms, Jesus saves us. He sees us and he saves us. Remember that Jesus sees us in the storm. Look, it says in verse 18 of John 6, it says the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and when they had rowed about three or four miles. Anybody ever paddled upstream? That's a hard, that's some hard rowing, right? That's some hard rowing. It's much easier going downstream. Anybody ever paddled into the wind going upstream? Even harder. These guys were paddling and they were not making much headway. They had rowed three or four miles. That probably had taken most of the night. And that's when they saw Jesus coming on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. I'll get to the fear bit here in a second. But put yourself in that scene. The wind's throwing waves over your boat. You've been rowing for hours. It's dark, you're drained, you feel hopeless. Anybody been there in life? Done everything I can. Got nothing left. I don't know how else to help this situation. I don't know what else to do. Anybody ever been in those moments and, and cried out to a God that has promised to be there and never forsake you, to, to love you, and, and said, where are you? Anybody ever been there? Yeah, maybe the disciples were there. But just know this, before they saw Jesus walking on the water, he saw them. It tells us in Mark 6, 48, that he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. This verse has always fascinated me because here's the deal. I don't know when the storm started. It doesn't give us the time stamp. But apparently these guys had been rowing in a storm for three or four miles. We're talking hours. Jesus has gone up onto a hill to spend time with his father and he's able to see whether literally by sight or because he's the son of God. He's able to see what's going on with his friends. He sees it happening and does nothing. Does everybody get that? He lets them row. He lets them get more afraid, more exhausted before he ever starts walking out towards his friends. Reminds me of the story of Lazarus a little bit later in Jesus' life. Remember? Word comes to Jesus that his good friend Lazarus is ill. The expectation from his sisters is that he'll come and heal their brother. But for two days he does nothing until finally after his, brother, or his friend Lazarus has died, he comes upon the scene in Bethany. And Lazarus' sisters come out and said, if you could only have been here, 
our brother would not have died. Remember what Jesus says? He says, I'm the resurrection and the life, sister. And then Lazarus walks out of his grave. But Jesus waits. He allows things to become even more difficult, more harrowing. (laughs) Why does he do this? Again, for the sake of the lesson. So that you and I could get to the very end of ourselves and finally release to him ourselves. And know that if we are saved in this situation, it was God and God alone who got us out. You got that kind of faith? I call it the sort of faith. Like I sort of believe that you're gonna get me out of this, but just in case you don't, I'm gonna do all this. And I sort of believe that you have this power, but I know I have this power, and here I go. And God says, okay, Junior, run yourself out. Get to the end. Keep rowing against the waves, brother. I'll come when you're done. I don't have a lot of time for this, but everybody knows there's already been a storm in the story of Jesus and his friends, right? Jesus fell asleep uh, after a hard day of ministry, and, and he's in the toe of the boat, whatever. That's not a real place. Anyway, he's in the boat, and, uh, and, and his friends are battling against this storm. I don't know why they didn't wake him up, or maybe he was just really you know, heavy sleeper. And finally, they, they, they come to Jesus, and they rouse him, and they say, hey, don't you even care? We're going to die. Remember what Jesus says? Oh, fellas. Oh, you. What if I... And he calms the storm. He just makes it stop. They'd had that experience. They just watched Jesus feed 5,000 men and their families. They had this understanding of Jesus' power, but the storm was too great. So it is that when they saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. It says in Matthew 14, 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. What I want you to know is that Jesus sees us and then Jesus saves us. And the way he saves us may not be the way we expected. Like, we might look at what's happening in our lives and we're seeing a ghost, but what's really happening is Jesus is meeting the need. He's providing for us. It's not what we expected. It's not how we saw this working out, but it's what he saw working out. So Jesus sees us in the storm and Jesus saves us in the storm. The question is, are we willing to trust him and wait? I know many of you have heard us talk about our boy Ben. Uh, we've been praying for him as, as he continues his spiritual journey to, to find faith in Jesus. Every once in a while, as you're going through your storm, uh, Jesus shows out in ways that you're least expecting. We are having a conversation yesterday morning at our uh, breakfast table just laughing, and it, it got onto the... Uh, to the subject of, of some spiritual choices that some of Ben's friends were making. And he, he talked about how, you know, they were just completely turning their back, running away from God. And we kind of said, yeah, <laughs> we're familiar. And we had this great conversation and we found out from our son that, no, oh, no, 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 that's not so much me. And we're sensing, I think I told you this a few weeks ago, Ben's living with us right now, and our first reaction to that was like, no. You're in your mid-20s, you're supposed to be on your own. That's what we've always been taught, we've always known. This is how it's supposed to be. This is not the plan. You're supposed to, you know, uh, take care of yourself. But then it came to our 
minds, oh, we've been praying for something to happen spiritually in the life of our kid, that, that some Christians would be able to be a part of his existence. Hey, me and Eleanor are Christians. Uh, maybe this is a part. And so what seemed like a ghost was really, we believe, our Savior. He saw us. I believe he's in the process of saving this situation. And he's doing it all so that you and I might have the greatest good from him and that he might receive the greatest glory from us. And so, I don't know what your storm is, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in here, listen, just remember who it is that has saved you from your sin. He is the same savior who will come to you in your storms, maybe not on your time schedule, maybe not in the way that you thought, but he is the rescuer, the savior of those who put their trust in him in the storms. He sees you, he'll save you. Now, there's some in here, and this word last thing, there's some in here who haven't met him yet. Don't you see your story overlapping this one? Here's the deal, the Bible's clear, the world is lost in a storm, a dark, helpless, hopeless storm. You can row and row and row and try to find meaning in this life, but apart from the guy on the middle cross, apart from the man who walks on water, you will never experience the rescue that you desire. And so it is that you need to just let go of the oars of your self-sufficiency. And you need to look to the one, the only one, who can save you. My sister told us earlier, he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. His name is Jesus. That's what I wanted to share this morning. That's what I wanted you to know as you leave here. I don't know what your storms are, but if you've got Jesus, Jesus can walk on water. And he might be taking some time, but he can rescue you from that storm. Trust him. If you don't know Jesus, you will never come out of that storm on your own. Let Jesus into your boat. Let Jesus into your boat. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to you grateful for this truth, for this story that's been captured for us in your word. It's a reminder of your power. It's a reminder of your plan. Sometimes you're just gonna let us, uh, you know, flail, struggle, get to the end of ourselves so that you can uh, truly save us and truly get all of the credit for the saving. If we're in that situation, God, right now, help us just to, to rest, to wait upon the Lord as you rescue and renew our strength. If we don't know you this morning, I pray that you'd lead us to you. Help us to see the storm that we're in and that you are the only Savior that will get us out of, a, out of the storm of our sin. Grant us that, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.